is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us today. If you've got a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Matthew chapter 1 and also maybe stick a finger in Joshua chapter 2. Those passages are also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, as always, we're glad you're here. Hopefully you got one of those kids' bulletins from the welcome table, and I'd love for you to be listening for three things in the sermon this morning. Write them down on your bulletin, and maybe you can talk with them over lunch with your parents this afternoon. But the three things I'd love for you to be listening for is first, be listening for a story about Queen Elizabeth. Second, be listening for the different places in the Bible that mention Rahab. And thirdly, be listening for who the great-grandson of Rahab was. Be listening for a story about Queen Elizabeth. Be listening for where Rahab is mentioned elsewhere in the Scripture. And be listening for who the great-grandson of Rahab was. Last week, we started a series that's going to take us through the Advent season, which are the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, looking at the genealogy of Jesus as we find it in Matthew chapter 1. And I know that doesn't sound exciting on the surface for many of you. I mean, after all, who enjoys reading the genealogies that you find on the pages of Scripture? I mean, normally those are the parts that we skim over because they're names that are hard to pronounce and they seem so irrelevant to our present situation in this world. But the genealogies that we stumble upon in Scripture are important. They really are, believe me. Even though the names can be hard to pronounce, even though they seem like outdated information to us, we can learn a lot from the genealogies that we find on the pages of our Bible. Matthew begins his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with his genealogy, seeking to trace Christ's family tree all the way back to Abraham, the headwaters of God's plan for the entire world. God has always worked through families to bring about his redemptive purposes in this world. And that's one of the things that the genealogies teach us. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus was a real man who came from a specific family. He had crazy aunts and uncles like we do. His family had baggage. He even, and get this, he even would have been influenced by his immediate family in many of the same ways we're influenced by our immediate family picking up habits and customs from Mary and Joseph as a human being. And as you read through the genealogy of Jesus, something significant stands out. And that's the fact that Matthew lists four different women in the family tree of Jesus. And this stands out because in that day and age, women were normally left out of genealogies. They didn't normally get a mention in the recorded family trees of the day. The other thing, though, that stands out about the genealogy of Jesus is the kind of women Matthew includes. The four women that he mentions in his list are all outsiders to the people of God. They're not Israelites. They're Gentiles. On top of that, all four women that we're going to talk about exhibited questionable moral behavior as you rewind and read their stories from the Old Testament. And Matthew didn't have to list these women, if you think about it. He could have listed more respectable women. He could have simply left these women out and we wouldn't have missed much. But he didn't. And the question for us is why? Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at each of these women that Matthew mentions and try to discern an answer to that question, 
Why these women? Last week, we looked at Tamar. And today, we're going to rewind and consider the story of Rahab. And in the coming weeks, we're going to take a look at Ruth and Bathsheba, the final two women that Matthew mentions in his genealogy, all in hopes of coming to see the beauty of the gospel and the way that God longs to use the unexpected, the outsider, the sinner, to bring about his redemptive purposes in this world. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the second mother of Jesus. We're going to be looking at the story of Rahab. So you follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll rewind to Joshua chapter 2. You follow along as I read beginning in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now let's rewind and take a look at Rahab as her story is recounted for us in Joshua chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I did not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, You also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Over the past year, one of our favorite shows, me and Rachel, has been The Crown. It's a miniseries found on Netflix that follows the life of Queen Elizabeth II from England. And the series starts with her reign as a 27-year-old young woman, and it follows the decades of her family's growth. It touches on her numerous relationships with different prime ministers that come and go throughout her reign. 
It touches on the intrigue and the dysfunction of her immediate and extended family, and it's really well done miniseries. A few weeks ago, the newest season was released, and we were very excited for new episodes. So excited that we've already made our way through all 10 of the new episodes. And in one of those episodes, it recounts a part of the royal's family life that they have tried to keep secret, that they have tried to sweep under the rug. Episode 7 of season 4 tells the story of a part of the royal family who live with developmental disabilities. It's an episode, as you begin to watch it, that goes back and forth from the castle and the parties that the royal family experience in their everyday life to scenes of an adult-assisted living facility where people with learning disabilities live. And it's a stark contrast as it goes back and forth between Buckingham Palace and this assisted living facility. The dinners are different. The birthday parties are different. The overall vibe of both places could not be further apart. Well, later in the episode, you find out that there are a number of people who are tied directly to the royal family who are living in that adult-assisted living community. Their relatives direct tied directly to the queen mother. There are women who live with learning disabilities who are left to exist in the depressing facility while the rest of their family experience the joy and comforts of royal life. Well, when the queen mother is confronted by her granddaughter about the treatment of these family members, she makes the case that if these disabled family members were revealed, then it would compromise the purity of the royal bloodline. People would lose faith and confidence in the royal family if they knew about the existence of these physically disabled relatives. The ladies who lived in the disabled home were a liability for the royal family. They were easier to hide and pretend like they didn't exist. Well, I tell you that story because hiding these family members to protect their reputation and power It's not completely unlike how you and I often deal with areas of our life that we're ashamed of, areas of our life that we'd rather others not know about. It's not unusual for us to want to hide certain issues that we experience in life, to cover over certain characteristics or actions that might make others look at us differently. It's second nature for us to want to see, uh, to want to put out a a well put together picture on the outside, hiding our struggles, hiding our failures, hiding our character defects and our spiritual liabilities. And we do this corporately as a church on one hand, where we welcome those who look like us, who have the same preferences as us, who come from the same socioeconomic background as us. We grow a bit anxious if we're honest when we encounter someone in our church community with a different political stance or those who have made questionable moral choices in the past with their sexuality or their relationships or maybe some of their life decisions. It's easier to want those kind of people to keep on moving because trying to make community work with those type of people is pretty difficult if we're honest. It presents obstacles we'd rather not have to navigate. We also do this not just corporately, we do it individually in our lives as well, where we gloss over shortcomings in ways that we miss the mark personally. We think about sins that we struggle with and we give ourselves a bit of a pass, don't we? Convincing ourselves that greed and lust and bitterness 
they're not as bad because they don't really hurt other people. We don't want people to know about the struggles that we experience in life, preferring to put our best foot forward. In an attempt to save our reputation, we bury our secret sins very deep, not wanting anyone to know about the explosive anger or the soul-deadening addiction or the secret pleasures that we enjoy when no one's looking. We want to project an image that elicits trust and admiration, both corporately and individually. And we do this, at least in part, I think, because we functionally refuse to believe the good news of the gospel. We pay lip service to the fact that God loves and welcomes sinners, and we're happy with that idea as long as we're not the ones who most desperately need that love and welcome from God. As long as there's someone out there that's a little worse than us. Well, because that's all of us to one degree or another, it's good that we have the story of Rahab in our Bible. Because Rahab proclaims the grace and the welcome of God. Rahab stands as a testimony that God longs to set his love upon sinners. And not only that, he then longs to use sinners for his glory and to bring about his redemptive purposes in this world. Rahab shows us that God doesn't hide from things we find unsettling or embarrassing. Instead, he pursues and he loves and he uses. To see that, let's look at who Rahab is. Let's look at what she believes. And then let's look at how she is used. Those are our three points this morning. Who is Rahab? What does she believe? How is she used? First, let's spend a few minutes considering who Rahab is. We're introduced to Rahab for the first time in Joshua chapter 2. And remember, Joshua is a book that recounts how God's people are entering Canaan and they began taking possession of the promised land that God had intended his people to live in and use as an outpost to get about their mission of bringing blessing to the entire world, of being a light to the nations. And as God's people move into Canaan, they were given the task of engaging the people who lived there to drive them out and militarily take over the land that had always been promised to them from God. And there are many things that we could say about this task that was given to the Israelites. But two important things to recognize is that Israel was bringing God's judgment upon these wicked nations. And and wicked they were. I mean, make no bones about it. It's not that they were minding their own business and living in peace when Israel all of a sudden came upon them. The Canaanites were just as brutal and as wicked as any people could be, sacrificing children to their idols, engaging in practices that we would find atrocious and reprehensible. They engaged in grotesque practices, and they would have just as soon annihilated Israel if given the chance. Like I said, much more could be said to address the objection of holy war. And I'd love to discuss that more with any of you who are interested. But suffice it to say, at the beginning of Joshua, God's people were just about to begin their campaign to enter Canaan, the land that God had always promised they would inherit and engage in mission from. God was taking the land away from the wicked Canaanites, giving it to the Israelites. And one of the first towns that God's people encountered after they crossed the Jordan River was a town called Jericho. And before Joshua moved ahead with engaging Jericho to overtake it, he sends two spies into town to scout it out, to basically see what's up there, what it looked like, and the best way to go about the conquest of that city. 
And as the spies entered the town of Jericho, they found welcome from a lady named Rahab. And in verse 1, we see that she was engaged in morally suspicious profession. A morally suspicious profession. Despite her background, though, she took the initiative to welcome the Israelite spies to host them in her home, which might have been like a local inn or a public house. And she also protected them from being captured by the king of Jericho. Rahab hid them in their home and made sure they were able to escape without being killed. Now, the fact that Rahab plays such an important role in the story of God's people is unusual for a number of different reasons. There are some liabilities that Rahab brings along with her that make her an unexpected hero in the story of God's redemptive purposes. What are those liabilities? Who is Rahab? Why is Rahab such an unexpected hero in the life of God's people? Well, first, she was a Gentile. She was not a part of God's people. She was not a part of the family of God, the Israelite. She was an outsider, as outside as you could possibly get. She was a foreigner to the promises of God. She knew really nothing about him until she heard something about him by way of basically news traveling. By birth, she was without hope and without God. Second, she was a Canaanite. She was from a different race altogether. She came from a corrupt and vile people who had been set apart for God's judgment. She would have been raised with a different religion, a pagan religion, where she would have worshipped lots of different idols through her life. Third, we see from the passage that she was a prostitute. She was a woman who was engaged in violating God's ways of life. Even though she might not have known it, she likely felt that she was violating her God-given conscience at least. She was an immoral woman. There would have been lots of baggage in Rahab's life. Her soul would have been deeply stained with guilt and shame. This was who Rahab was. She had so many liabilities in her life that would have worked to keep her from coming to the God of Israel in faith. There were so many hurdles and weaknesses that made her an unlikely convert. But she stands as an encouragement to all of us. She shows us that no one is so far gone. No one is so far out of bounds. No one is beyond the reach of God's amazing grace. God is one who delights to overcome even the biggest hurdles when it comes to bringing people into his family. And some of you know this to be true. I mean, just think of the hurdles that we've created for ourselves. Think of the bad decisions, the immoral choices, the links that God had to go to find us and bring us back. Think of all the ways the cards were stacked against Rahab. Yet what we see from this passage is that God loves Rahab's. He loves to pursue and find those who think, who we think are least likely to be invited into the family of God. Rahab stands as a testimony to God's deep and wide mercy and grace towards sinners, towards outsiders, towards those who have worked against God's purposes in their life. When we think about who God uses in this world, Rahab just doesn't fit in many ways. She would raise some eyebrows if she walked through our doors on Sunday morning, an immoral outsider, whoever that might be in your mind. She wouldn't fit, not like most of us fit. I mean, you look like you fit. Most of you look like you fit. You're attractive, you're educated, you're relatively wealthy, you're successful, relatively speaking. By external markers, you're a group of people that we'd expect God to use 
you fit. But I bet you don't normally feel that way. I bet you don't normally feel like you fit. I bet you struggle to feel like you fit. We look good on the outside, but we struggle internally to believe that God could really use us, that God would love us, that God likes to be around us. Most of us feel like Rahab might have felt, even if we don't look like her. And this passage is a big encouragement to us that God loves Rahab's, God loves to use Rahab's. We could even say that God likes to be around Rahab's. Do you know that God loves you with all of your issues, all of your insecurities, all of your sin? And get this. I know for those of you that are more emotionally driven um, or that that are more intellectually driven like me, this emotional talk can kind of feel a little wishy-washy, but you need to hear it. Do you know that God loves you before you clean up and start acting right? Do you know that God likes to be around you? If not, maybe you're here this morning to hear just that from God as he speaks to you through his word. That's who Rahab is. Now let's turn and ask, what does Rahab believe? We see something surprising in the story of Rahab. She demonstrates by her words and her actions that she has come to believe in the God of Israel. She demonstrates deep faith in God's goodness and control throughout the account that we see in Joshua chapter 2. In fact, Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 And then once again in James chapter 2 as an example of faith and how faith is meant to drive our behavior and our good works. Rahab, the immoral outsider, an example of faith and action for God's people in all times and all places. That's pretty amazing. And it's obvious from Rahab's actions in her confession in verse 9 through 11 that she had heard of the God of Israel who was known by his personal name Yahweh. She had likely heard of the plagues that Yahweh had sent against the nation of Egypt. Word had traveled. And according to verse 10, she had definitely heard of how Yahweh divided the Red Sea, allowing his people to escape while defeating the powerful Egyptian army. She had heard the news of how Yahweh had defeated the neighboring Amorite kings Sihon and Og. Rahab heard of the character and the mighty works of God on behalf of his people. And here's what's amazing. She not only heard, but she believed. Her confession is beautiful in verses 9 through 11. She had the kind of faith in Israel's God that enabled her to forsake and turn away from her Canaanite gods that she had worshipped her entire life. The ones who had failed to protect and care for her. She repudiates her past as a Canaanite and throws her lot completely in with God's people through this confession. She risks everything for the God of Israel. She has the kind of faith in Israel's God that enabled her to stand up to the king of Jericho and protect the spies at the threat of her family and her life. Rahab knows that she lives in the land that has been promised to Israel. She knows that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is one who makes good on his promises. So in verses 9 through 11, we see a remarkable confession of faith. It's one of the most, uh, it's one of the first confessions of faith in all the Bible. And it's even more remarkable because it's a confession made by a foreigner, one who didn't actually witness these events with her own eyes, but simply believed because she had heard. As Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. It's extraordinary faith. 
Rahab believed the news that she had heard about Yahweh. And we know that she was loved by God because she began to love God. After all, it's God who first loves us. We love because he first loved us. Rahab had been loved by God. And because she'd been loved by God, she made her confession in verses 9 through 11. And her confession is instructive for all of us, whether maybe you're making a confession for the first time this morning or making a renewed confession as we do throughout the Christian life. First, you notice that her confession accurately acknowledges her situation in verse 9. She knows that she is doomed without God, that she's living in Yahweh's land. She confesses who she is. She knows that she deserves God's judgment as a Canaanite, as a prostitute. Rahab knows her situation. That's the first aspect of her confession. Next, we see in verses 10 and 11 that she knows who God is. News has traveled and she had heard the stories of God's mighty actions. So she confesses that she knows Yahweh is God in heaven and on earth. She confesses God's power and God's unique identity. And then lastly, we see in verse 12 that Rahab appeals to God's mercy. She knows that her only hope is to receive God's mercy, so she asks for it. She pleads to be saved because of her faith and her actions that are motivated by her faith. And she eventually is saved. Her faith in God rescues her and her family. And it's amazing uh, faith displayed by Rahab. She sees her situation. She knows who she is. She knows that God is righteous and powerful. And she turns toward him instead of away from him. And whether you're doing that for the first time this morning or the hundredth time, that is what confession in the Christian life looks like. And her confession of faith is amazing if you step back and think about it because she did not need a long training program. She didn't need years of Bible study or Sunday school under her belt. There's no deep knowledge of theology per se coming from Rahab. There's no waiting period to see if she shapes up in her moral life. It's just a simple confession of belief in the power and mercy of God And her faith saves her and protects the spies and brings about salvation and rescue for God's people. So we've seen who Rahab is. We've seen what Rahab believed. Now let's turn quickly and look at how God uses Rahab. God not only pursues Rahab, he also uses her in significant ways. Remember, this was an outsider, an idol worshiper Canaanite, a morally compromised woman. If God was going to bring her into his family, surely, 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 she'd have a less important role to play, right? Surely the sidelines would be good enough for Rahab. I mean, getting in by the skin of her teeth, so to speak. After all, she was lucky just to get in the family of God, right? Love how James Boyce puts it when he says this. Rahab was not given a second-class salvation, From the very beginning, she received the whole thing. Her position was equal to that of any citizen of Israel, and in proof of that, she was brought into the noble line of the tribe of Judah and became an ancestor of our Lord. God did not treat Rahab as a second-class citizen in his kingdom. What we see is that God uses her to magnify the reach of his grace. In our passage, she saves the spies' lives, she protects the Israelites, and ensures that they accomplish their God-given mission of inhabiting the land of Canaan. If she had not been there to help, it's possible that Israel's mission wouldn't have succeeded, humanly speaking. 
She played a critical role in God's mission at this early stage in redemptive history. And through her faithful actions, Israel is saved. And on top of that, she's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 as a mother of Jesus. She becomes the mother of Boaz, who becomes the father of Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of King David, meaning that Rahab is the great-grandmother of King David himself. And as we close, we've got to ask, why did God include this story in the Scriptures? I mean, if it wasn't included, it's not likely that we'd even miss it. I mean, we just get right on with the story that God wants to tell. We can move right on without even knowing these details. But God includes it because he wants us to know that he deeply loves and delights to use Rahabs in this world. God doesn't hide away the Rahabs of this world. He doesn't seek to cover them up. He puts them front and center. He makes them central figures in the work of redemption and salvation. And from Rahab, you can be sure that God wants to use you too. You have a purpose in God's plan for this world. If God can use Rahab, he can certainly use you. No matter your background, your story, your failures, God wants to use you as an agent of his grace in this part of San Antonio with the people that you rub shoulders with to magnify his reach in this world and to bring glory and honor to the God who came to be with us the God who came to seek and to save the lost, like Rahab and like us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you are orchestrating events in this world and in our lives in such a way that we are brought blessing and forgiveness in such a way that we get to experience your grace and your mercy on a daily basis. And we pray this morning that as we consider how you pursued Rahab and how you used Rahab for your glory, that you would encourage our own hearts in this season. Encourage our hearts to believe that you can use us. No matter what we've done, no matter who we are, you're a God who loves to welcome sinners, and that is our great hope and delight this morning. We pray that you would help us to believe it more deeply. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.